In three, two, one. Welcome back to another episode of What the Bleep Are They Talking About? The podcast where we help you understand what everybody's talking about in the news today. I'm Jack. I'm Jennifer. And before we get started, make sure you share this content with everybody. And make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on all the social media. And remember, guys, only follow us on our content or we get sad. But seriously, make sure you get content from all over the place because we, we don't want you being left in the dark like some people in the world today. And Jennifer, to help out with that, we're going to have a special guest on the podcast tonight a member of the Libertarian Party, scratch that, the chairman of the Florida Libertarian Party, and he's going to help our viewers understand the other third party. He's going to help me understand the the third party a little bit because I always get a little confused on libertarianism and all that. I feel like I align with them, but I don't really know. And I think this kind of hits close to home. Didn't you tell me the other day that your granddad was a libertarian? He was a secret libertarian. He was a closet libertarian, yes. Because so, your grandma, what, she voted Democrat, and yeah. she didn't want him to vote Democrat. So I really but. don't know how he voted, but, you know, we'll never know. But anyway, we'll, we will introduce our guest now. His name is Stephen Nicalia, and if I pronounce that wrong, you can correct me right now. <laughs> Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jack. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Nicalia. It's, it's a bit of a doozy. Everyone gets it wrong, so don't feel bad. And, uh, and I hope to talk to you guys a lot about libertarianism tonight and and, and the party. And, and as I always say, I think that uh, most people are libertarians. They just don't know it yet. Have you noticed over the last couple of years, have more people shifted more into that kind of Democrat, libertarian, Republican, libertarian? Has that kind of improved at all? Well, I'd say that demographics are shifting. And if you look at a timeline, uh, even in Florida, for instance, you can actually see that the old two parties are going down in voter registration. The only two political segments in Florida, at least, that are uh, increasing are no political affiliation and third parties, including libertarians, the Greens, constitutionalists, et cetera. And what I see a lot, especially in the younger generation, is that we're seeing a lot more radicalization of the youth, quite frankly. And we're seeing uh, the younger generation move more towards libertarianism and move more towards uh, the radical left, in my opinion. So we're seeing a divergence here. but. But what we're seeing the most of is that the moderates, the folks that are kind of in the middle, especially the younger people, um, they're going NPA. And, and most people right now are politically homeless. Even the folks in the Republican and Democrat parties, um, they're finding that their parties don't represent them. And they're trying to find a new political party, uh, someone who actually represents their values and is willing to work across the aisle in a diverse uh, variety of beliefs. And, and I think that libertarianism is really the political party that is slated to really take the center stage in the future when uh, third parties become more dominant and, and we break through ballot access and everything else and get more and more into the uh, political mainstream as we're slowly starting to do. The party's been around for, for 50 years and, I, and I'm starting to see a much more rapid uh, increase in the use of the word libertarian and libertarianism and people that identify with libertarianism. So uh, to answer your question, I do think that demographics are shifting and we're seeing people from both traditionally the left or the right or who have more conservative or social core core values that are finding a home in the libertarian party because our values resonate with theirs that really um, they've been a libertarian this whole time they just didn't know yet 
So I actually wanted to ask you about that. So over the last two years, pretty much because of COVID, we have seen a lot of, of shifting around. Uh, for instance, we have a lot of red voters leaving blue states and coming to places like Texas and Florida. I was kind of curious, is that helping the libertarian movement in Florida or is that kind of diluting uh, libertarians with the influx of Republicans into the state? Um, well, there's certainly an influx of both Republicans and I'd say Democrats too, or traditional Democrats. And I think what we're seeing in places like California and New York is that a lot of the people that are leaving those states probably don't agree with a lot of the policies there. And I know people always make the argument, well, if they come here, they're going to vote the same way they did over the year. And I think that that is partially true. But um, I think both people that are traditionally conservative or traditionally liberal, but are finding that um, you know, their states are just out of control with spending, with taxes, regulations, uh, whatever the case may be, are now flocking to these freer states in search for more freedom, less regulation, less taxes, et cetera. Um, and they're kind of places like Florida. And uh, I've actually, quite frankly, I've seen a lot of people come from northeastern states that are joining the party, um, some folks from Cali and other places. So so I don't think it's really been hurting us, per se. Um uh, I think, if anything, the last two years has actually brought a lot more people on board because of COVID and government's reaction to it and everything else we've seen in the last two years. And that severe overreach has actually done a lot to disenfranchise a lot of the uh, Republicans into realizing that, you know, their party in the face of adversity doesn't stand up for their freedom and really that the duopoly parties are the same on these issues. Um, I know in Florida, Governor DeSantis originally shut us down uh, in, in March of 2020 with, with some certain uh, parameters, not necessarily a shutdown, but, but did put down some mandates and also allowed my county, Monroe County, to, to actually shut down. And we had a, essentially a, a, a checkpoint on the, 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 the stretch that leads into the Florida Keys that prevents people from coming in who weren't residents. And that was allowed to go on for several months. We had mandates for, for about a year. And he started to change his position later on in COVID um, when he finally started to, I think, realize, and we had sent him some letters too, the, expressing our grievances. I don't know if those made a difference or not, but but somewhere along the line, he did start to turn around a little bit. And I think there was sort of some, a populist sentiment too, to uh, reverse the lockdowns as much as there was a sentiment to keep them going. So a lot of people were awoken in, in many places around the country. Um, both parties did nothing but uh, agree with and, and support lockdowns and mandates. So. Um, it's starting to open a lot of people's eyes up, and I think, if anything, more and more people are uh, looking for some alternatives and trying to figure out uh, what makes sense. So there was a Gallup poll that was released in February of 2021, and it showed that 62% of voters uh, agree that there should be kind of a third party. However, in your experience, have you noticed when it actually comes to the time of voting, do they actually jump ship and vote third party, or do they feel like... You know, it's more risky to do that. I might as well cut my losses and just go with the party line. And even though they're going to be disappointed in the end. That's a great question. And one thing we hear a lot of as libertarians is, why should we vote for you? Are you just a protest vote or a spoiler or a wasted vote? And to that, the first thing I say is, if you don't vote for someone who represents your principles or you as a human being, then by definition, you're wasting your vote. Um, I can say that everyone that voted for Hillary Clinton wasted their vote because if they would have voted for, um, you know, Gary Johnson, then <laughs> then he would have became president instead of Donald Trump. So um, but I do understand the sentiment that 
folks feel like, well, if I vote for the libertarian, they're not going to win. And so I need to vote for the lesser of two evils in order for at least marginally less worse policies from uh, from uh, uh, being put into place and, and bite the bullet. And uh, I, I think that long term strategy has brought us to where we are. And we can see that um, voting for lesser two, two evils uh, consistently is still voting for evil. Um, so what we do in libertarian parties recognize that uh, libertarians are much more apt at winning nonpartisan elections. So when you have that L next to your name, it makes it a lot more difficult to win an election, especially if you're in a three way race. So where we, we have shined as far as uh, partisan elections, we did win a, uh, a Senate seat in Wyoming that was partisan. We also have uh, Jeffrey Hewitt out in California and Riverside County, and it's a two million person district. He went up against a Republican opponent, rode the blue wave as a libertarian, and, and he actually got elected. Um, the fact that he didn't have a Democratic opponent obviously helped, and because he's now in office, he's uh, the fifth person in a five person district, and uh, and he becomes that, that uh, with two Republicans and two Democrats on the board, he becomes a uniter and he becomes the decider. So there's opportunities for libertarians in those types of settings. But the reality is that the majority of races that we are targeting and we're looking to to win are mostly nonpartisan races. So these are your, your city council, um, uh, certain county council races that might be opportunity races and, and, and local boards and things like that. And the idea is as libertarians, we can build up and then we can start to uh, or build out before we build up. Now, it's a little bit different in every state because uh, Pennsylvania just won over 150 partisan offices as libertarians. So they won over 150 seats really? just this past year. And that's just one state. So it varies a little bit in different states, depending on what the rules are, what the ballot access laws are, um, because third parties like the Libertarian Party are severely disenfranchised when it comes to ballot access. I was actually just on the phone with Ryan Graham uh, earlier today. He's the Georgia Libertarian Party chair. And people don't realize this, but we had a conversation somewhat venting our frustrations that uh, most people either don't care or don't know that the old two parties of duopoly have been working to keep third parties independence off the ballot since Ross Perot. So once Ross Perot made a big uh, leap at the presidency, they realized that their status has been threatened and they'd actually rather work together to, to essentially climb the ladder and kick it off by putting in unrealistic or very difficult rules in place that are very expensive, very costly um, for third parties like libertarians or independents, but very easy for them. So, for instance, in Georgia, in order to get on the ballot um, in certain positions like state house, state senate, you need something like I think it's forty thousand signatures. Um, where wow. if you're a Republican or Democrat, you only need five hundred. Sounds totally unfair no. and insane, right? That's yeah, that uh, <laughs> because yeah, for us. So, running for office for us, we need twenty-five, forty-six for the U.S. House of Representatives. But it's forty thousand to get on the ballot in Georgia. It's something like that. It's something for, for not for U.S. House, but for their, their state house, I believe it is. That's crazy. And, and it, yeah, we just had a court injunction up there because um, with COVID, it's made petitioning very difficult, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. um, so they did reduce those requirements, but still very expensive, very difficult. Um, now, in, in other states like Texas, you need 5% of a gubernatorial race uh, to... Uh, get your candidate at least 5% in that race to maintain major uh, minor party status, to just be, be a political party for two more years. So we spend millions of dollars in ballot access. Um, and over the last 50 years, libertarians have spent uh, millions of dollars. And we've actually been on the presidential uh, ticket 
twice the last two elections, which is a record for us. So we're the only third party that actually has thir uh, 50 state ballot access plus D.C. and Guam. And it's very hard fought. Now, in Florida, we're very fortunate because thanks to a constitutional convention um, 20 years ago, we actually got um, the best ballot access in the country. If the three of us wanted to start our own political party tomorrow and one of us wanted to run for president, we could do that. And the barriers of entry are very low. So Florida is probably the best state when it comes to ballot access, but that's not the case everywhere. I'm down. I'm, I'm up for running for president tomorrow. <laughs> are you old enough tomorrow? I'm not. I'm not. But, you know. um, so when it comes to ballot access, do you think something like I hear a lot of talk getting rid of the D and the R kind of when you're at the uh, when you're going to vote? Do you think that would help kind of get libertarians elected or maybe force people to invest more time and energy researching the people that they're voting for? I think it would help. I, I think it would help because what we see in our current political system is that you have this two-party duopoly and they feed off each other's energy. So um, really, it's it's it benefits both of them. And when you get into the ballot and you pull the proverbial lever and vote party line, um, and there's some states where you can actually vote, you check off a box and you vote all Republican or all Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, they make it that easy on purpose because they want to keep people on party line. It doesn't matter how terrible that candidate is. Um, vote blue no matter who is right. just yeah. one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life because uh, as as independent free thinking citizens, allegedly, you would hope that we can make the determination um, to to actually hold our elected representatives accountable and choose who we really want. And, you know, there's there's kind of a joke that the day a libertarian becomes president, the first person that will call for uh, their impeachment will be a libertarian <laughs> because we're, <laughs> we're so hard on ourselves and our own people um, to be uh, idealistically pure and and in our in our policy that uh, we're, we're very uh, we're very obsessed with that kind of thing. And that's that's the standard that we hold politicians to that we hope to hold ourselves to when we, uh, of course, when elected office and, and as we do. I actually, uh, I actually completely disagree with you saying that vote blue no matter who is a problem. I mean, we've learned that if it rhymes, it's sublime. <laughs> I was working on that one. But uh, when it comes back to ballot access, um, do you think Jennifer is really into uh, ranked choice voting? Do you think that something like ranked choice voting would really help third party candidates kind of get onto the ballot? Because right now it, it just seems like red versus blue. But if you have ranked choice voting, then maybe libertarians would have a an easier chance of getting into office? I think so. I think that um, in 2020, we're faced with uh, the prospects of top two. And for those of you that don't know what top two is, top two essentially states that whoever the top two vote getters in a primary are, they're the ones who move on to a general election. So let's say you have a re two Republicans or a Republican, a Democrat or two Democrats, and they get the highest votes. Well, that's going to be in your ticket. It could be all one political party. And that's exactly what it is in California. And uh, basically, since they enacted top two in California, there have been no third parties on most of the contested ballots. Uh, and when it comes to actually getting to the general election, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible. So when that came out in Florida, we worked very closely with the Green Party. We actually sent out about 10,000 um, uh, of these rat cars that we took to polling stations and affiliates throughout the state and started passing out to educate voters on top two. We did this all in the course of about 10 days. We had the design printed and shipped and started distribution within about 10 days. So uh, the alternative to 
top two is ranked choice voting. And Jennifer, I'm glad you're you're up to speed on that because the Libertarian Party worked with the Green Party to actually kickstart uh, ranked choice voting off here in Florida. With uh, I believe the organization, the name changed to Rank the Vote, Rank the Vote Florida, and that started with uh, Libertarians and Greens in conjunction with uh, Rank the Rank the Vote USA. So. Uh, ranked, ranked choice voting is phenomenal, and what it does is it gets rid of the the argument that your vote is wasted. So essentially, you can rank your candidates in, in order of preference. So, for instance, if your first choice was, let's say, Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, then it, once she lost, if your second choice was Gary Johnson, then your vote, your vote would go to Gary Johnson. And if your third choice was Jill Stein, then it would go to Jill Stein and, and you know, finally Donald Trump or whatever order it might have been. So it allows people to put their first option forward first. And if that first option is a libertarian, then that libertarian could win the election. So yeah, it's always just made more sense to me to, to give yourself choices instead of just saying, well, OK, yeah, it's definitely this person. So how long until kind of what's the process to get that kind of implemented in Florida? What's the timeline look like? So right now, I think they're shooting for a potential referendum. And since the Constitution changed and requires uh, ballot, uh, petitions only valid for two years up to a uh, referendum or an election. So it's going to take a, a lot of effort to get it there. But right now, what they're doing throughout the state is they're trying to pass it locally in different areas. And to be honest, you know, local political action is phenomenal. It's, it's mm -hmm. not as daunting of a task to get involved in a local community, get a couple friends together, make some allies politically and go in on something like ranked choice voting, get the ballots, uh, you know, get the get the petitions put up to a referendum or get your city council to, you know, lobby them to potentially pass something like this or your county or what have you and implement ranked choice voting locally. And I believe it just happened. If I'm not mistaken, it was it just passed in Sarasota um, a while back. But I know there's some issues they're trying to stop implementation of it. And I believe they're trying to actually outlaw it at the state level. So it's an uphill battle, but it's certainly um, something that is very popular and it's growing throughout the, the country as it just passed. I think it passed in three states. I don't want to say which ones because I I'd always get them mixed up. But uh, but it did just pass in a couple of states. They're implementing it. And I think once that starts to kick off, we're going to see a greater uh, movement towards getting ranked choice voting in the rest of the country. I'm going to have to keep my eye on, that, eye on that because that's something I should vote for. So last time, I think it was in 2020, I voted against um, allowing parties to vote in the primaries for the other party. And now that I'm running, that was a dumb move on my part because Actually, now I can only have – Democrats voting for me and I can't have Republicans voting for me in the in the primaries. But well, that's actually a good thing you voted against that because that was the same thing as top two. They just kind of worded it weird. Oh, OK. Yeah. And that's another problem when you get to the polling place, whatever they're trying to pass, it's always worded in a way that they want you to to vote for. It sounds good on the surface and knowing Floridians, we just like to vote yes on everything just to see what yeah. happens. <laughs> Uh, so, some, okay, so let me move into some more nuanced questions. So this sure. one, these ones are kind of about personal freedom for the Libertarian Party. So many political pundits have referred to people in our political ecosystem as, quote, frogs boiling in a pot. Uh, this is in reference to the general public who are unaware of the slow regression of our rights and personal freedoms. Aside from the starkly obvious federal overreach during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
where were personal freedoms being limited prior to 2020? And this question is kind of more geared toward the younger generation who grew up post 9-11 who aren't aware of the liberties that they didn't grow up having kind of in the uh, security state. That's, a, that's an excellent question, Je uh, uh, Jack. And, um, you know, as someone who I was, I was young, I was in elementary school when 9-11 when occurred. So uh, my whole real upbringing was in a post 9-11 world. And uh, right off the bat, 9-11 uh, and pretty much every crisis throughout history, um, or as the, uh, the what I think it's the, the project for a new American century, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. And 9-11 was no exception. And, and from that, we had the rise of the national security state, the rise of the nanny state, uh, the rise of the surveillance state. Um, and, and first and foremost, uh, post 9-11, you have um, just from the Patriot Act and the National Defense Authorization Act, which uh, encroach on our freedoms and allow government unprecedented control over um, uh, aspects of, uh, of, of our lives, including expansions of the, the Department of Homeland Security. You have the, the TSA searching every time you get in a flight that literally they've been proven dozens and dozens of times in, in their own internal studies that they are not effective at stopping terrorism. Um, you have the NSA, which spies domestically on us, lies about it. They do not just collect metadata. They can spy on the president um, as exposed by Snowden and, and other whistleblowers. Uh, they have been proven in federal court that they have never actually stopped an imminent terrorist attack. Um, and this is being pointed towards uh, our allies overseas, all, not just our, our, our so-called enemies, but also uh, towards domestically, it's been turned inwards uh, here at home. Um, other than that, the war on terror has created more of a threat globally towards the United States because in the process of fighting this so-called war on terror, which is a war on really an ideology rather than a nation state or a flag, and it's been misguided if the last 20 years of, of conflict have shown every, anything, it's that it was worth nothing and has created more uh, bloodshed and suffering than, uh, than was ever necessary at all. Uh, without adding a single ounce of security to the United States is we've made more enemies around the world and have created more terrorists and which led to the rise of ISIS and, and obviously the Taliban taking back control of Afghanistan. Um, so really nothing has changed and I think there's a, uh, a misguided, uh, there's, there's this myth of this, this sort of mythical American superiority that, that we pride ourselves. And I do think there are things that are exceptional about the United States and our economy and our entrepreneurship and our prosperity that really made this country what it is that we've been long divorced of uh, for many, many decades. You know, my father is a, an immigrant from Egypt. He moved over to the States when, when he was young and uh, his father died shortly after of cancer. So he grew up with his brother, a single mother in New Jersey, and uh, eventually started businesses and, uh, and, and, and living the American dream in, in his own right. And that's something that he tells me he could never do today if he had to start over again or, or if he started that now, it would just be impossible. And that's because of things like taxes, regulation, these barriers to entry, um, over, over encroaching government. You have the, the IRS, which is processing, uh, taking in more money now more than ever and going after people who are uh, spending $600 or more, uh, you know, in their, in their Venmo or PayPal accounts, et cetera. So, and they might've increased that to something like five or 10 grand in the, in the recent bill. But uh, the fact remains that um, all around, you can see encroachments to all of our rights, whether it's the, the, 
rights against uh, searches and seizures, whether it's um, simply traveling overseas and having to deal with the, the TSA, whether it's um, trying to start a business and paying an exorbitant amount in taxes and going through uh, all this, this red tape for regulations and all these things that we can see getting worse and worse year over year, millimeter by millimeter. And, and what these politicians do, what the government does, these lawmakers, is they will take, they'll take a couple inches just up to the point of protest, and then they'll reel it back. And then right after people calm down, they'll go a little bit further up to the point of protest, and then they'll reel it back. And they'll repeat this process thousands of times, and before you know it, you're a mile from where you started. And, and that's where really we are as a country and, and, and who we've decided to continue to let lead this country and who we put our faith in. And as a libertarian, you know, what I believe is that we as individuals cannot outsource all of our um, our visions of the what we would like to see in, happen in the world to the government. Because what happens then is, number one, it doesn't make us a better society if we just give the government the permission or the, the privilege of controlling our lives for some kind of uh, greater collective good, because in the process, um, they strip us of everything. And, and it doesn't actually mean we're better people because of it. It just means that um, we're, we're letting the government try to, to create this giant welfare warfare state on our behalf that ends up just ruining everything in the process. And the ultimate uh, cure-all for, for a lot of the problems that we have right now, it's not a, it's not a utopia. Uh, libertarianism is not a utopia. It's simply a better world that we believe is what works uh, is uh, freedom. Freedom, I think, a lot of the answers that uh, uh, a lot of the the answers to many of the, the problems we have is going back to a, a freer uh, and more prosperous society uh, devoid of uh, all the government intervention that we have today. Yeah, it almost feels like we've been over the last couple of decades putting band-aids over band-aids and now all of a sudden all the band-aids are starting to peel off. And maybe, maybe hopefully the band-aids I guess is being the synonymous with I guess government aid overreach, but hopefully maybe underneath all of that the wound is healed and maybe we should get back to I don't know, this is a terrible analogy, but anyway, when it comes to kind of government overreach, how does that coincide with private industry and what they're able to do and the power they're able to exert? So on our show, we've had progressives, we've had moderate Democrats and centrists, um, and they've all agreed that social media censorship is a problem. So from the libertarian perspective, is mm -hmm. social media censorship okay uh, because it's a private corporation? That's a very good question. It's something that uh, libertarians have been talking about amongst ourselves for a while now, too, is how do libertarians approach censorship, especially on private platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And the first thing that we often say is, well, if it's a private company and they make the rules, then it's a privilege to be on their platform and they can decide what they decide to do. Now, whether we like it or not is a completely different story. I know Facebook recently purged uh, several thousand libertarian pages. I believe it was back in 2020 or 2019, uh, you can look back and, and look it up, but many very popular libertarian pages being libertarian that had hundreds of thousands of, of followers and others were completely scrubbed off the internet. Uh, Why uh, they, did they, they had the they, they said it was in the name of fighting spam. That was their oh. excuse. They gave, us, they gave no other uh, explanation as to why these pages disappeared, but that was the guise of their removal. And so, so obviously we have a problem with that. Um, as far as their right to do so, I think that as long as these companies are completely private, then they definitely have the right. I can disagree with it. 
um, but that's their right. Now, where it starts becoming a dystopian problem is when you have uh, government backing up these platforms or using this technology for, for their own benefit, uh, subsidizing this technology and, and, and its development for whatever ends that they might have. So uh, that obviously is an issue, and we libertarians believe in removing uh, government from business completely. Uh, that's what Mussolini calls, uh, that's his definition of fascism is the merger of corporations and the state, or a more modern term would be uh, uh, crony capitalism or, or corporate corporatism. So this, this crony capitalism is something that often gets confused with capitalism, but is actually uh, could be, couldn't be further from it. So when it comes to kind of, you know, the problem being government utilizing these platforms to censor speech, what is your thought on kind of fact checkers? Because we know that there's certain media outlets that are kind of shilling out for certain political parties. Um, and then they also have attached to them fact checkers who are kind of not maybe they're censoring speech, but they're kind of leading the public in a different opinion based on a certain set of facts. Is that considered okay if, if kind of it's connected in that roundabout way back to, you know, the federal government or whoever's in charge? I think that when you have, you know, social media fact checkers, you have people that are trying to influence public opinion on these big tech platforms to try to create this narrative or move people in a certain direction. And the reality is, is that all of these people have political biases, whether they say they do or not. The, the matter of fact is um, these they have political biases and, and many times they're exercising them. And that's often what the media does, even if it pretends to be unbiased or or, or fair. Um, the, <laughs> almost entirely you're going to get some kind of bias there's there's very few very neutral outlets out there that allow for nuanced objective conversation and, and analysis and things so uh, yeah i think that that it is a problem that we have you know certain fact checkers that are just making very odd claims um you know and uh saying really funny things and trying to to influence public opinion and and, and they're trying to put up these these bumpers in this bowling game uh, that is public opinion and trying to make sure things stay on the straight and narrow and you can't veer too far here, you can't veer too far there. And, and it's a big problem. And I think it's really probably a symptom of a greater problem in society right now is that there's not much room for dissenting opinions. And, and one big problem with social media is that you have, um, it, it's created the space for echo chambers. So if I'm somebody who, you know, decides one day I'm going to believe in flat earth theory, eventually through YouTube algorithms, through Facebook algorithms, through whatever it is, I'll find myself in a space where everyone somehow agrees with me. It seems like the world agrees with me and I'm right, even though that's probably not the case. Um, the same thing goes with our political uh, uh, friends and, our, and, and the content we consume online is that it creates these echo chambers. And what's very dangerous is in that is that I'm a big fan of, of political discourse. Discourse is what brought me to libertarianism. I've always been very curious. I've asked many, many, many questions that brought me here ultimately. Um, but it wasn't because I just one day woke up and said, well, I'm a libertarian. Everything else is, you know, garbage doesn't make sense. Uh, I've explored uh, all sides of the spectrum and, and really evaluated and, and, and sympathize with a lot of the, uh, the issues out there. And I think that most people want the same thing. They just have different ways of getting there. And I just believe that libertarianism is the, the surest, most logical way to get to where we want to go as a society, a freer more prosperous, healthier um, type of society. And so 
uh, going back, I think that that these big tech companies do lead to and purposefully do to, in order to keep people on these platforms and profit from this is to keep people engaged in conflict and uh, and, and within their own their own bubbles, which is creating a very unhealthy political environment, not just in the United States, but all around the world. So I have one last question on personal freedoms, and it's a little bit long. So. On January 13th, the Supreme Court shot down President Biden's vaccine mandate for businesses while, of course, upholding it for certain healthcare workers. Uh, prior to this ruler, the U.S. The ruling, uh, the U.S. district judges for Louisiana and Kentucky both cited the 10th Amendment and their issuing of the injunctions to the vaccine mandate in early December. Uh, quote, the states have broad authority to enact legislation for the public good, but the federal government has no such authority and can only exercise the powers granted to it, including the power to make all laws which may be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the enumerated powers. As a libertarian, do you agree that the states and private, private businesses are within their right to mandate vaccines, whether or not you agree with it? So my thinking is, and the libertarian view is that the state does not have the authority to mandate vaccines. However, under certain circumstances, I can understand if a private business uh, decides to uh, mandate vaccines for their workers. Now, there's a caveat there, and that caveat is that libertarians believe in the ability to seek uh, repercussion for damages. So if I work for, let's say, a hospice care company, and I'm around very high risk people all day, it would make sense that my employer might ask me to get vaccinated in order to protect uh, some of the uh, elderly people that I work with. However, if I get the vaccine and I get the damage, let's say I have heart problems that's, that can be verifiably linked back to um, an mRNA vaccine, a very rare reaction that can occur, but very real for many people, it does occur. If I get that reaction, there's no one I can go after. I can't sue the, van, the, ma the vaccine manufacturer. I can't sue my employer. Um, I would need to be guaranteed that if something were to happen, that I'm insured against damages and that somebody was held liable if, if I'm taking this against my will. The problem we have is in the United States and really around the world is that these uh, pharmaceutical companies are asking for special favors when it comes to the law. So ordinarily, if I sell you know, somebody, uh, a cheeseburger, and that cheeseburger contained, you know, asbestos, um, and, and I did not ex disclose that to them, and they got sick and, you know, got cancer or whatever, or it contained some kind of poison, uh, and they got sick and they got damaged from that, then I should be held liable as someone who was responsible for that. But as a pharmaceutical manufacturer, if my product damages somebody, what I'll do is I'll go to the government and I'll ask for special favors and say, hey, look, we're going to sell you um, a billion doses or of this vaccine, um, but we require complete medical immunity or legal immunity if in the event of any adverse reactions or deaths. And so that poses a big issue because in a libertarian society, the way we deal with corporations and we deal with corporate power and business is that we need to be able to seek uh, remediation for damages. That is the cornerstone of, of law in a libertarian society or libertarian criminal justice system, is that if you're damaged, you need to be able to be uh, become whole again through that process of the court system. Um, without that, then it's a one-way street. And so I think that um, any employer or any business that offers or mandates that this vaccine must be taken without some recourse, um, whether it's to the, to the supplier or to the business, 
um, should not be able to hold their their employees um, to to a mandate. I don't think it's acceptable. Even uh, you could make the argument that uh, uh, you know that uh, it might make people might be safer. But I, I think without offering some kind of uh, um, protection against damages, then it really is not something that a libertarian can support. And certainly not something that the state or federal government should ever be allowed to, to, to mandate. So I've heard this one, and I kind of agree with it. Because the vaccine is a lifelong treatment, right? It's something you get, and you can never take it away, that the employer should have to pay you to take that vaccine. I, I know it's something that would never actually happen, but what do you think of that? Because it's something you can't get rid of, like OSHA has to mandate hard hats or something you can take off at the end of the day, but a vaccine, it's with you for life. Right. Well, you know, I've been, uh, I took the Moderna shot early on back in, I think it was April, and then I took the second shot in May uh, of this year and, uh, or 2021. And uh, that was right before we started learning more about it and started getting, um, you know, you're learning more about the, the blood clotting and the uh, potential myocarditis, especially for young men. And, the risk reward and and perhaps maybe looking back on it maybe it was a good decision maybe not um but but at the end of the day it was my decision and i think any decision needs to be between myself and my doctor uh if i'm going to make a medical decision then, then that's the libertarian view is that that's between you and your medical professional it's not between me and a politician or me and the government um in very few cases i can see it being between me and an employer for a potential job that involves you know high risk health uh, uh, and safety if I'm traveling to, to other countries that might require, you know, me to, to get vaccinated in order to, to best perform certain work without becoming a liability or being around certain uh, high-risk individuals to ensure it makes sense. But, but I think that, uh, you know, ultimately when it comes to vaccines, um, yeah, it's with you for life. You're taking a medical procedure. This is a medical procedure that could have adverse effects. It's putting something into your body. Um, which libertarians believe you have the right to put anything in your body that you wish. If you want to smoke weed or drink gasoline or, you know, do whatever it is, you're, you're more than free to do it as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Uh, but for the government to mandate that you put something in your body against your will is uh, it's, it's a form of tyranny. It's a form of authoritarianism that uh, I think is very unwise. And as far as what businesses might be able to, to do to sway their, their folks to, to, to take any vaccine, let's say it's the, the flu shot or something else or some type of medical product that actually you can sue for. Well, I think that that comes down to an individual's decision, whether or not they want to abide by the terms of that contract or not. So for the YouTube overlords that are watching, we're not advocating you to drink gasoline. <laughs> but <laughs> just in case they're watching. But but on the issue of foreign policy, so the Republicans kind of post-Trump are the American first movement, and they're more unilateralism, and the Democrats are more kind of globalist or, or multilateralism, whereas libertarians are more so uh, non-foreign interventionalists. But my question for you is kind of where is the line in the sand that says kind of a foreign nation, it, it's threatening the health of, of the United States and our freedoms through its aggression and its expansion. What is kind of the line in the sand where you say, okay, well, we have to go and we have to kind of combat this problem because before it gets out of control and it, it does start kind of being something that does kind of restrict our own freedoms? Certainly, that's a good question. and. Uh... Libertarian foreign policy is very simple. Um, we believe that 
Uh, all military action should be defensive, not offensive, as it has been in the United States for a very, very long time, uh, especially in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, so we believe that, well, going back to the founding fathers' vision of a, a federal military, uh, the military was supposed to not be a standing army. It was actually only supposed to be called uh, together by Congress during times of war. And the reason for that is because the founding fathers worried that if the United States was going to have a standing army, that it would be used for imperialism or global conquest or simply to go to war with their neighbors, whether it's Canada or Mexico or whoever, um, as that's what they've been, that's what they saw in Europe for so many hundreds or even thousands of years, uh, is that, that you have these standing militaries that are you know, that eventually someone's going to want to use them. And that's what we're seeing right now with NATO and, and Russia and Taiwan and China and everything else is that when all you have is a hammer, everything tends to look like a nail. So libertarian po form, uh, policy is essentially that it, we need a real the U.S. military back to a defensive posture. So only when we're being directly threatened, and I mean imminently threatened um, with attack or invasion, then is it okay to, to respond? Because libertarian philosophy hinges on the NAP or non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle is simply the golden rule. Um, it's that we're, you, an individual should not aggress against somebody unless it's in self-defense uh, or perform, you know, hurt somebody or take their stuff. Uh, it can only be purely defensive action that anything that violates that principle, whether it's from an individual or a government is against libertarian principle. So in the case of foreign policy, um, you know, libertarians are funny. We're, we're kind of like pacifists, but many of us are very passionate about our, our rights to self-preservation and our rights to, uh, to own firearms and, and do other things as far as protecting our own lives and taking that personal responsibility that we do not trust the state to provide for us. So we'd rather take that upon ourselves to be responsible or within our communities and in our homes to, to protect ourselves and, and those that we care about. And so... Uh, I believe, uh, just to answer your question, uh, that, that that line, uh, as you said, is is purely defensive. And uh, mm -hmm. as we can see what's going on in the world, uh, uh, we would really benefit from that libertarian foreign policy right now. Yeah, I joked to Jennifer when she walked into uh, through the door. I was like, are you ready for World War III? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just lining up on the Ukrainian border. So who knows what's going to happen? How does the defensive strategy work with kind of allies as well? Well, that's a good question. And um, <clears throat> so I do believe that we should avoid entangling alliances. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is pretty clear right now what we're seeing with, with Ukraine and the potential for, for real global conflict that we haven't seen in almost 100 years. Um, so when it comes to allies and it comes to the founding fathers vision of, um, and, and this is ties with the libertarian vision as well, is that when you have allies, it can create conflict. It's like you're at the bar and you have one buddy who's mouthing off to somebody else and, and now he's in the fight, so now you got to go and protect him. Well, uh, if you would have just stayed home, at least, uh, you know, you wouldn't have to go and, and defend that one friend of yours that just always gets in fights every weekend and, you know, maybe just leave him out of the party next time you go somewhere. Um, it's okay to have friends, but when you're trying to protect them all the time, it gets pretty old and it can get you in a bad situation, especially if they pick a fight with somebody a lot bigger than them. And that's exactly what happened with the country of Georgia. Uh, I believe it was about a decade and a half ago where NATO said, we back you up in the event that Russia goes after you. And so the country of Georgia started poking at Russia and they came down on them very, very hard and NATO wasn't there to back them up. Now, this time with Ukraine, 
um, and NATO in general is you have a situation where the United States is providing security for Western Europe and has been for a long time. Now, when uh, the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union was beginning to collapse, um, uh, the West promised Gorbachev that they would not uh, move into these Eastern European countries and they would leave that vacuum open uh, if they were to back down. And so that's what happened. Now, however, uh, since then, NATO has become more and more emboldened and has pushed their bases up close to the Russian border. And quite frankly, this is where we start to get into tensions with, with Russia and NATO. And so now, Russia as a country, understandably, is worried about all these military bases and, and forces and all these Eastern European countries trying to join NATO and building up this military force because Ukraine is one of the few buffers between them and the West. And so if you look on a map and look at voting demographics for Ukraine, for the eastern part of Ukraine, pretty much votes for pro-Russian politicians. Um, a lot of them speak Russian. And there is some credence to the idea that Ukrainians speak Russian, at least on the eastern half. Now, whether or not they want to be independent or not is really up to them. And it's, it's, it's their future that they need to fight for and decide for themselves, right? Their history. It has nothing to do with the United States. We already fought for our history and fought for our future in 1775. So we don't need to go back and, and, and do it for somebody else, to, just like we try to do in Vietnam and just like we try to do in Afghanistan. Um, it's not our place to fight. So um, NATO should be, the U.S. should be out of NATO, 100%. Any alliance that puts us in a militarily compromised position where now we are, have liabilities is, is not a good position for the United States or the world for that matter, because all that does is embolden smaller countries to pick fights and make them think they're a lot bigger than they are. Uh, so now you have two points of contention on the global scale right now. One is Ukraine, the other is Taiwan, where the US has formed a coalition with Japan and Australia uh, against the Chinese. And so uh, really between China potentially looking to invade Taiwan and Ukraine looking to, uh, Russia looking to invade Ukraine, uh, it makes for a very compromised position. And I'm much hoping that cooler heads prevail in this scenario and uh, and there's de-escalation. Do you think that will happen? You know, it's 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 tough to say what what is posturing and what is reality. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of the Western um, idea is to the Western philosophy is oftentimes to do a lot of cage rattling. And there's a lot of covert stuff the, the, the West does and, 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 and a lot of different ways that warfare is fought these days, especially economically and now digitally as well, um, rather than actually shooting guns and firing missiles at each other. Uh, either one can be just as devastating if applied in the right manner, quite frankly. Um, so I don't know it's gonna, how things are going to play out in Ukraine at this time. Um, it's, it's really hard to say. This is a conflict that's been going on for, for I think, eight years now. It started in 2014 or 2015, I think. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's hard to say what's, what's going to happen here um, and how it's going to play out. But uh, it's not the first time we've been in this situation, but it's certainly not a comfortable uh, situation to be in. So let's move over to immigration, because Jennifer and I were going over the Libertarian website, and we had a couple questions for you. So... When it comes to immigration policies, how would you rate the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration? And <laughs> under libertarian leadership, what would the southern border look like? That's an excellent question. And quite frankly, I think both Obama, Trump, and Biden were, are 
were and are very similar when it comes to immigration. And I'm not sure who is the worst because um, <laughs> <laughs> many people might not know this, but Obama was deporting people left and right. And he was not very pro-immigration. Uh, I don't know if people look into his policy or his speeches, but he was actually pretty anti-immigration, especially at the southern border. Uh, Trump just made more of a big deal out of it and used it in his populist messaging to try to rally people and uh, I think scapegoat the immigration issue uh, a little too hard. I don't think it's, uh, well, first off, I, I don't think, I think we're looking at immigration completely the wrong sense. Um, the way things would look like under a libertarian uh, administration is that we'd go back to essentially what would be an Ellis Island type immigration system where you had countries from all around the world coming to the United States. Um, yes, we know who they were. They're not felons or whatever. They're not violent people that are coming in, but they're peaceful people. And there was an expedient process to get into this country. Or now, most Americans aren't familiar with the process because they don't have friends or families uh, that are trying to immigrate into the country. But the process is nearly impossible for most people. And if you're lucky enough to actually become, uh, to even immigrate into this country or lo and behold, become a citizen, it takes years, sometimes decades, sometimes never, where you actually have people that have been living here for decades that get deported just because they were driving with a broken taillight and uh, just at, at the wrong place at the wrong time. So uh, this country was built on immigration. It, it vastly requires immigrant labor. And for selfish purposes, we could um, surmount that immigration is important for two reasons. One is our declining population growth. The United States is declining, so is China and other countries. Um, and that's going to cause a lot of problems when it comes to having young workers actually able to work and do jobs to support the retiring class and, and fill up all these jobs. And, uh, and that requires you know, to have actual labor participants coming into the market. Um, that was kind of my one and my two technically, but the declining labor growth com and combined with uh, the lack of of, of uh, workers and people willing to actually do tough jobs most Americans don't want to do are two very good reasons to have um, to open up the uh, the immigration system, aside from the fact that we're letting people in this country that want to be here, that want to work, that want to be a part of the American dream, which I think is uh, unfortunately slowly fading away due to policies like we have when it comes to immigration that make it so difficult. So in a libertarian uh, approach to immigration would be to streamline these systems, make it much, much, much more expedient to actually apply and be approved for citizenship and, um, and, and, and allow people to more freely enter the country. Yeah, I was actually, I was actually thinking about this the other day about Ellis Island and how people would come across and they would be expedited to be American citizens. And it got me thinking like, well, why is the process so incredibly long for other people who come in here? And why isn't it that, you know, as long as we just do a background check, they can get you know, their social security number, they can start paying taxes, they can start working legally in the United States. What's really the big deal about that? So that's really interesting that you brought that up. And on the topic of kind of the Biden administration, do you think that it's kind of on purpose that they're very lax on the southern border, uh, given the COVID-19 problems to the economy, such as the low worker, uh, not having enough workers to fill positions, the low production, um, do you think that they're doing it on purpose to kind of flood the market with these workers to kind of get things going again? It's, it's definitely very possible. And I think one of the reasons that they, they try to be more lax uh, at the southern border is really more political than it is even economic consider, 
economic considerations uh, because I think if their administration was making more economic considerations, they would be doing a, a lot of things differently um, in that regard. But I, I think that the, the Biden administration has been a bit more lax. However, they really haven't been uh, changing policy in any meaningful way that I've been able to see. And, and I know uh, friends that are in the process of immigration. Um, my, my fiance is from Bosnia. And so, you know, her family and her friends, uh, most of them are immigrants from Eastern Europe. And so there's a lot of Eastern Europeans here in Key West and, and in a lot of immigrants in general in South Florida. So I'm very familiar with the immigration system. And as far as I can tell, nothing's changed under the Biden administration. Um, there's still long wait lines to to get in. There's still a lack of embassy visits available in other countries to even apply for uh, these visas, these temporary worker visas or student visas or even visiting visas that you can't even work. So so nothing has changed. And some part of it is allegedly due to COVID. And so uh, I think it's given Biden an excuse to not tackle these problems and continue the status quo when it comes to immigration policy. So really nothing's changed much uh, at all under his administration. Nothing's changed really at all that, that I can tell. No, if anything, it's it's really just been a reverting back to Trump era policies, such as, you know, the Supreme Court ruling that the Remain in Mexico policy can stand. Or even I think there was an article that we read about on the podcast where the Biden administration was finishing the border wall, but they were citing uh, environmental problems as a rationale to, to finish the wall because of land erosion and, and, and such. <laughs> um, but so on the topic of immigration, so New York City, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, recently, I think it was on January 9th, about 800,000 uh, or so uh, non-legal, no, legal immigrants, but like, anyway, they allowed 800,000 immigrants to vote in local elections mm. in New York. What is your kind of thought on that? So they're not citizens no, yet, but yeah. they're allowed to vote. That's really interesting. I actually wasn't aware of that. Um, mm -hmm. So the libertarian position is that, you know, voting is voting in some ways can be an act of aggression. That's something we believe, because really, when it comes to democracy, um, democracy is a flawed system in itself. And this is something that's been discussed for centuries. Um, by, by political philosophers, especially that's one of the things that the, the founding fathers realized early on. And there's an argument to be made that the United States was intended to be a republic based on the rule of law rather than a, a democracy, which is based on mob rule, which is literally the Latin demos is mob, ocracy is rule. So mm -hmm. um, this mob rule or group rule it basically states that, well, if 51% of the people in the room want to you know, rob a bank, then that makes it legal and okay. Um, or as Frederick Bastiat put it in his uh, 19th century book, The Law, um, he talks about uh, essentially the idea of legalized plunder, that just because group A wants to plunder group B, um, they're, they're on the majority, so somehow that makes it okay, but invariably you're gonna find yourself on the short end of the stick at some point, that's just the way that democracies work. And, all democracies team seem to devolve into the same way. There's more rules, more regulations is being done by the majority rather than the government, which doesn't make it right. Um, it just makes it the majority. And so libertarians strongly believe in, in the rule of law. So essentially, if we're going to have a government and it's going to be uh, you know right to, to justifiably exist, 
It needs to be based on the rule of law. So the rule of law would be um, that the government is there to protect your life, liberty, and your property. And all laws are based on that rule of law. And anything outside of that rule of law is uh, not something the government is supposed to be making laws about. That's what the Tenth Amendment and the Constitution were, were trying to limit. But as Lysander Spooner uh, famously said, if the Constitution either uh, was unable to, to, to stop or fail to stop the, the expansion of government, so um, it, it was unfit document, essentially. It, it had no purpose, which I, I somewhat agree with and I somewhat disagree with because you know, there are a lot of it has to do with the individuals in the country that actually cite the Constitution and fight for a limited government. Um, but um, uh, going back to uh, the the was 800,000 or whatever it was, uh, mm-hmm. not uh, legal immigrants that weren't voting citizens. I mean, you know, I can I, I don't think that I believe that voting could potentially is is aggression. So, uh, you know, it. It depends. I mean, if they all voted for freedom, great. If not, then you just have another case of democracy, democracy failing. And I'm sure it was it was split in whatever direction. But, uh, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it really comes back to the reasons why we need limited government and why we need to return to a rule of law over democracy. Whether it's immigrants voting or citizens is irrelevant. Well, I think uh, I think I know what we're all thinking. Uh, Good luck to New York. In the future, <laughs> but I like to. Uh, I like to end. Cry. Yeah, I'll say. Hopefully, they don't come down here and. <laughs> um, I'm sure they that. are. But yeah, they're a little too late for that. <laughs> well, uh, protect us. Have the Libertarian Party protect us down here in Florida. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, but I like to end the uh, the podcast kind of with a quote that I I, I found. Um, and this one comes from libertarian author and theorist Tom Palmer, who is a senior member at the Cato Institute, which, for those who don't know, is a libertarian think tank. Uh, and it has to do with the seemingly endless and anxiety-fueled culture war many Americans on the left and right find themselves in. And from reading about libertarians, it seems like you're really trying not to get involved with the culture war. Uh, and I think this quote really, really speaks to that. Uh, So the culture war is based on the presumption of power. It's presumed that government has the authority to tell us how to live. But there is an alternative, the presumption of liberty, live and let live. So, Stephen, it was awesome having you on the podcast. Tell all of our viewers, where can they find out more about the Libertarian Party and what social media channels can they follow? Absolutely. Well, you can check us out on lp.org for the Libertarian National Party, or or you can uh, find the local libertarian party for you and your state or your local county affiliate. You can also go to lpf.org, sign up, become a member, donate, and uh, we'll get you in contact with your local uh, county affiliate so you can get involved at the local level. If you're just libertarian curious, you want to show up, see what we're all about, and uh, and come meet us in person, fantastic. If you have any questions for me, you can always uh, reach out to me on social media or hit me up at chair at lpf.org if you have any questions within the state of Florida. Uh, or even around the country, because I'm also on the board of national directors for the, the LNC. So um, I'm, I'm happy I could uh, be on uh, the show with you guys today, Jack and, and Jennifer. And and I thank you guys for having me on. And thank you so much for coming. It's been awesome. Yes, definitely learned a lot. So thank you. And for all of our viewers, make sure you also follow us on YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, what else do we have? Facebook, YouTube, we've got pretty much everything. Use the links in the comment section and comment. Do all the things, and we will see you in the next one. Bye, guys.